Amen. Give it up for the band. That was awesome. Grab your Bible. Let's open back up to Philippians chapter 3. Tonight, I want to get us started by asking a question. What are some things that have made you feel happy in the last moments, the last day or two? What are some of those things that made you feel joyful? Uh, you know, maybe it was this morning when we walked into the cafeteria and you saw those huge, massive bins of bacon and you thought, happy, today's going to be a good day. And then you tasted it. No, I'm just kidding. It was good. It was good. It was good. It, it actually is some of the best camp food. Camp food can be rough. This is a good spot. You guys got a good spot. What are some things that made you feel happy today? Maybe you, I don't know, won the Gaga Ball tournament, that made you feel good, or you won a game. I don't I mean, laser rifles, maybe you just did really well. Maybe you had 24 kills and your, <laughs> your call sign was Bob. I don't know, I don't know. Maybe you just were waiting for the coffee shop to open and when it finally did, you were like, happy. So happy. I want you to think about this tonight. I want you to think about the things that give you that feeling of happiness and then those things that take it away. You may notice as you think about those that happiness is kind of vulnerable. It's a vulnerable thing, something that can change often and it can change pretty quickly. It's not a real head scratcher. Most of us are happy when things are going our way, when times are good, and we're not happy when they're not, when things seem to be going against us. We're, we're not happy when our expectations about how something's going to go, when those expectations aren't met. We're not happy when we feel like we're not being treated the way that we're hoping we would be. Events around us kind of result in these negative experiences and our happiness Fades. So for most people, I think you might find yourself in this category, happiness seems to be entirely circumstantial. You're happy when things are good, and when they're not, happiness is tough to find. Joy is tough to find. So your happiness and your joy, they're largely connected to situations and events that are completely outside of your control. You can't control what people do. You can't control how they act. And once you add sin into the mix, your sin and the sin of others, well, it just becomes this kind of perfect storm for unpredictable and inconsistent joy. So if you're struggling with happiness, wondering why you're not very joyful or a person who's not very often very happy, our text in God's word tonight might be of some help to you. 
As we get back to Philippians 3, we've been learning that Christians are called to rejoice. We're commanded to be joyful, full of joy, but there is a catch. It's joy that's not based on our circumstances, but it's it's joy that's in the Lord. It's a joy that doesn't depend on other people. It's a joy that doesn't diminish when you can't find your, you know, your favorite shirt. Uh, this is a joy that is permanent and it's invaluable because it's a joy that's in the Lord. It's a joy that God gives and a, a joy that he wants everyone to have. This joy, as we've been saying over the last two sessions here, it's a joy that can only begin to be in your life when you embrace the gospel, when you become a Christian. Without that, you can't have this kind of joy that we're talking about. Here's the thing, because we have to be reminded to have this joy by God through his word, well, that's just very telling, and it, it tells us that this joy then, it's not going to be something that's automatic. It's going to be uh, something that's sort of coming and going. It means there must be something that can stop it and something that can mess it up. And that's what we've been looking at the last two sessions. And you could look at chapter 3 in Philippians here as some of the biggest threats to your joy. If you don't think right about Christ or his gospel, you will not have the joy that you're meant to. We have to think right about our Savior. And then this morning we saw that you have to think right about your sin as well. In verses 12 to 16, sin and the life of a believer can rob you of assurance, can rob you of the joy that you're meant to have knowing that you're secure in Christ. It can cause you to doubt what God has done in your life. It can lead you astray, not only into more sin, but a life of just always questioning and doubting and ultimately just never growing. That's going to result in a life that's just struggling to find the joy that God intends for you to have. Just like a car always headed the wrong way on a one-way street. It's just not what it's supposed to be. So God, again, through his word, wants to make sure that believers are protecting the joy that they're supposed to have in the Lord. And there are two more things that we're going to look at. Two more joy stealers, you could call them, and their worldliness and also worry. Tonight, we're just going to look at worldliness. We still live... In this world here, dealing with sin and, and a world just desperately trying to knock God out of that number one spot in our lives. So many things here trying to pull you away from that affection for God, trying to convince you that they can fulfill you, they can satisfy you, they can give you the same joy that God's offering. But God wants you to know that they can't do what he alone can do. The world cannot give you the joy that God gives. So chasing happiness in the world is going to leave you joyless. That's going to be our big idea for tonight. Chasing happiness in this world will leave you joyless. Let's read God's word together. We'll start in verse 17 and see why this is true. Paul writes this. 
My brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved If I gave you enough time, I I know you could pick out sort of those two commands that book in this section. You'd spot them eventually. They're imitate me in verse 17. And then in chapter four, verse one, Paul says, stand firm. We start to see that this is a passage about imitating Paul and standing firm in our faith. And generally, that's a, a great message That's certainly what this is about, but what specifically is it that Paul once imitated? And why is it that we need to stand firm in the Lord? And for that, we just reread verses 18 to 19. He says, for many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears that they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Paul is warning believers about things which can steal their joy. You can't truly be a follower of Christ and have a mind that's set on earthly things. And when you compare this to verse 20, you see that Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And he's on purpose. He's trying to set up this contrast here, this this incredible comparison to see the difference between those who are following Christ and those who aren't. Believers, he says, are citizens of heaven. Unbelievers are citizens of the world. Look at verse 18. He says, unbelievers walk as enemies of the cross. Their God is their appetite, glories and their shame. But then verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. Christians are different. Our citizenship is not in this world. We belong to God's kingdom we belong in God's domain. Our heaven or our home is where God is in heaven. In our text tonight, Paul, we learn from him the true dangers of worldliness. And this isn't going to be a sermon about technology. It's not a sermon about how we use our time. It's not going to be a message about whatever your obsession of European soccer teams or what all that stuff is is symptomatic of worldliness but it's not the virus it's not the problem those are factors but but not the main thing worldliness is dangerous and I want you to try to capture some of this because it leads our heart to try to find joy in something that cannot satisfy it worldliness is dangerous because it leads your heart to try to find satisfaction and fulfillment and joy in something that can never do that. 
It robs us of the joy that we're meant to find in Jesus. It distracts us and it pulls us away from true happiness. Worldliness, it isn't ultimately about the wrong friends. It's not ultimately about time management or having too many apps on your phone. Worldliness is about your heart. It's, it's an issue of what you love and whom you serve. It's a matter of where you know you belong. I would maybe say it this way. Worldliness wants to hold you captive to a lesser joy, a fake joy. It wants you to love the things that are here. It wants you to, to long to serve yourself. It wants you to feel like you belong here. Worldliness is about embracing the system of this world, the values of this world around us, the anti-God and the only thing that matters is your personal happiness sort of attitude. Worldliness wants to make you think that the only joy you'll find and have is in the things of earth. The last place the world wants you to look for joy is with God. Our world would say, just do you, be yourself, fight for that personal happiness, do whatever it takes to be happy, to be successful. It doesn't matter who you hurt or how you act to get what you want. Just do it. Forget about God, our world would say. Or Better, our world would say, there is no God. Psalm chapter 10, verse 3 says, The wicked boast of his heart's desire. The greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked in his haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That's sort of the mantra of our world that we live in. They want to try to convince you that there's joy in doing whatever makes you happy. There's joy in pursuing all the possessions and all the popularity that your hearts just can desire. Our world would convince you that there is joy and real joy and permanent joy available if you only make the effort to attain it. But it's a joy substitute. It's a fake and false joy meant to distract you, an imposter with a purpose. The world offers you anything that would keep you from finding joy in the Lord, and that should not surprise you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. The God of this world, the, the devil, he's doing whatever he can do to keep unbelievers, unbelievers, distracting them with anything he can to keep them from seeing the true joy that's available in the gospel. That's his plan. That's his scheme. And he's pretty good at it. This world is obviously full of things that keep you just enough satisfied to stay here. It's 
a little bit joyful, a little bit happy, just enough to keep you sane in the sinfulness of your heart. Who needs God? Ultimately, like we read in Psalm 10, you get to that place where you say, maybe there is no God. All part of the devil's plan. This is what Satan longs for, what he longs for you to say. Maybe I'm God. That's why worldliness is so dangerous, but we know the truth. Even just from Philippians, we know that real joy is available, but there's a catch. It's only in connection to who Christ is and what he's done. So what do we do? How do we fight worldliness? Well, our text tonight can help, it, help us. Four sort of responses to worldliness, four principles for, for winning this war against worldliness. How do we keep our joy in the Lord? Well, number one, copy the right people. Copy the right people. Paul says in verse 17 to imitate him. He wants these believers to copy him. And he encourages them to keep their eyes, he says, on those who walk like he does, who, you know, who live just like he lives. Paul's saying, follow my example. You want to know what to do. You act like me. You imitate me. You learn from me what I do, what I say, learn how I think, and then just do that. And not only Paul, but those who are already imitating him. He says, there's more than just me. There's lots of people who are doing that. Lots of people that you could imitate. And he says to do that. Verse 17, watch them do what they do. And you may say, great, you know, Paul, what is that though? What are you doing that these believers were to copy? What's the point for us? What is it, you know, exactly in your life that we're supposed to mirror? What should I be looking for? Well, I think of even just what he said in verses 12 to 16, he isn't perfect, but if you remember from this morning, he's somebody who's actively chasing godliness and holiness. He's persevering in that by staying motivated in his relationship with, with Christ. And that's a pretty great example. Paul's saying that his life is a good example to follow. He's fighting against worldliness. He's not letting it get a grip on his life. And you should do what he does. So you guys, here, here's the point. You need to find some examples of people that you can copy people who are not comfortable with this world some examples of people who aren't acting like the world who know not only that God is real but they know the truth about God and they know what they believe and they love God and they belong to him they find their joy in their relationship with with Christ, they've submitted their lives to follow him. If you know somebody like that, you, you live how they live. You do what they do. And for some of you, I think that's your parents. And for others, it might be people that you know in your church. The point is, though, if you look hard enough, you, you can find someone to imitate, someone to help you live the way that God expects you to live, somebody who's, who's chasing after godliness. 
who's trying desperately to figure out what God's word says about life and to apply it and do it and live it. Find those believers that you can imitate. Find those people who desire to be more like Christ in their thoughts and in their words and in the way that they live and then do what they do. Learn what spiritual disciplines that they have in their life. Ask them a ton of questions. Ask them how they got saved. Ask them what they do in their quiet time. What are they reading in the Bible? Ask them what they pray about. Figure out how they're drawing closer to God and then do that. Copy the right people. Number two, we got to recognize that worldliness is very dangerous. Recognize the danger of, of worldliness. Verses 18 to 19. Verse 18, Paul's sort of recounting this with, with tears. He says, you know, so why the tears, Paul? Because he's talking about people that used to claim to be a Christian. They claimed that they loved Jesus one day in the past, but now their worldliness is saying otherwise. They've abandoned the gospel totally they, that they were so close to. You could say it this way. They professed faith, but they never possessed it. They only claimed it. They didn't actually have it. And that's a sad reality. They heard the truth so many times. They knew the gospel, but they rejected and they chose the world instead. And this is what Paul says of them. They are who they are. They're enemies of God. They're enemies of the cross. There's just no other way to read this. An enemy of, of God and worldliness is so dangerous as you think about it, because it makes you an enemy with God. By the way, that's just who you are without the gospel. That word enemy is the same word that Paul uses in Romans 5. He says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's who you are without the gospel. You're an enemy of the cross, an enemy of God. That's what Paul is saying. And so we start to understand you cannot have both God and the world. You can't have both. You can't put both of those in that number one position on your priority list. You can't serve both God and the world. You can't love both. You may already be thinking about that verse where Jesus says you can't serve two masters, but it's really the verses before that that we need to hear in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also Jesus says no one can serve two masters for he either will hate the one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot serve God and money so where your treasure is that's where your heart is 
You can only love and serve and worship one thing at a time. Worldliness makes you an enemy with God and and worldliness will only end in destruction. Verse 19, your God is your belly, your glory is your shame, your mindset on earthly things. All of those phrases point to one truth. What people want most in life is right here. That's what those are about. Jesus can't be number one because they're too consumed with self. They're their own God. They only love their own glory and they only think about how this world can benefit them. It's a heart that's enamored with all that this this world has to offer. This is where they belong. This is where they find happiness and reward. Everything they want out of life, it's just right here. No concern for Christ, no awe for the Savior, no desire to be with him, no thought of the reward that he offers. Jesus is not only out of the number one spot, he's not even on the list. That's what worldliness does. And that's so, so different from how Paul thinks and lives How much, if you can remember from this morning, how much he wants to be like Jesus. How little he wants anything to do with this place. Everything he wants out of life is not here. If we're going to win the war against worldliness, then we have to copy the right people. We've got to recognize the dangers of worldliness. And then number three, I'm just going to say it this way. Be more homesick. For the Christian, we have to be homesick. Paul sort of tugs on the the heartstrings a bit for our true citizenship. I think the point for us, you guys, is that if if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, it's, it's really clear. You do not belong here. This is not your home, your citizenship, where you truly belong and where you're headed is in heaven. And you need to consider it more than you do. And you need to crave it more than you do. You belong in heaven with Christ, Paul says. And he reminds the Philippians of a great promise and truth. We are not waiting for anything else to happen in in time, in our history. Nothing that we're waiting for until Christ can return. We're simply just waiting for that moment when he returns. And when he does, he's going to do something amazing. Paul talks about it here. Our our bodies are going to be changed. We're going to be given a new body that's fit for eternity. And we shouldn't doubt because Christ has the power and the authority and the ability to do that. We're going to get this new body that's suitable for our eternal life with him. 1 Corinthians 15 has a lot to say about that if you want to read more, but but. Paul's just doing something here on purpose. He's trying to get them excited about eternity, thinking about heaven. Oh, yeah, that new body, that's awesome. I want that. Oh, yeah, eternity. Oh, yeah, being with, with, with God in heaven forever, a place where there's no sin and a, a place where everything is the way it's supposed to be. He's trying to get them excited about their true home. 
He wants their minds engaged in thoughts of heaven. Heaven. He wants them longing for it and thinking about it. And that's convicting for us, isn't it? We do not think about heaven nearly enough, which is why God in his word tells us to so often. A great place in Colossians 3, he says this, if then you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. A world that's full of distraction, but a question you need to ask yourself, not only tonight, but way more often in the future is, how much do I think about heaven? When's the last time I thought about heaven? About where we're going? About where we're going to spend a really hard to think about amount of time, eternity. It's hard to think about heaven, but, but we should. It helps us fight against worldliness. It, it, it helps us from feeling like this world is where we belong, that this world is it, that this world has everything that we're, we're joyful about and happy about, that this is all because if you're a Christian it's not lastly I just want to talk about one more number four commit to your convictions chapter four verse one commit to your convictions be devoted and dedicated be committed to what you believe you could just use Paul's word he says stand firm that's what we have to do stand firm in the Lord be Firmly committed in conviction or belief. That's what this is. Know what you believe and why you believe it. That's what Paul's encouraging these believers to do. That's what God wants you to do if you're a young Christian, to know what you believe and why you believe it. You gotta own it. Resisting worldliness just isn't gonna happen. It takes resolve. It takes an intentional Refusal to let go of who we are in Christ, like a dogged effort to stand firm in the Lord. We don't just lay in bed and hope that it happens. We have to, we have to work hard at it. We can't just do nothing and think that we're going to be immune to worldliness. It makes me think of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, which says, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of of the devil. If you're struggling with happiness tonight, if you're wondering why you're rarely joyful, there's just a great lesson here for us. Worldliness is offering you such a bad deal. It wants you to trade something that can offer you real joy for something that can't. Permanent joy traded for a joy substitute that only keeps you wanting more. And I know you've experienced that. I know you've set your mind on something that you've wanted so bad and when you got it, like, Three days later, it had just lost its luster. I know you know what that's like, and that's precisely what we see in, in a passage like this. 
always looking for more, for bigger, for better. It's just an endless pursuit. There's so many examples that we could highlight, we could use for an illustration. So many people in our world who have won the lottery or inherited billions, rich and fame, who have different beginnings to their story but all have a similar end, where they were miserable. They've written about it, they talk about it, how awful, how it was the worst thing that's happened to them. But the best story of that is actually in the Bible. The best story of how unsatisfying the world's goods are, we we can read about in Ecclesiastes. You know, Solomon, I, I know you're familiar with him, wisest, wealthiest person to ever walk the earth. He was so wise and, and so rich, I think out of boredom, he tries an experiment. And, and Ecclesiastes sort of records it. He tries to find happiness outside of God. Ecclesiastes, that's what that book's about. Life without God. And because he has the wallet to do it, he, he tries everything he can think of to find joy to be satisfied, to be happy. Any experience he can think of, he he does it. Any of the world's goods that he can dream up, he has the money to build it or buy it. Even chases academia, chases getting wiser and smarter. And for chapters, he talks about this experiment, this pursuit, and in the end, here's sort of his summary of it, it's vanity. And he uses a phrase that I never really understood, but I'm starting to understand it better. He said it's like chasing the wind. He he just feels like he has it. And then when he goes to look, it's not there. And so he goes to the next thing. He went to the next thing, keeps chasing after this, this pursuit of joy, And he cannot find it. Nothing in the world could satisfy him like God could. And that's why he writes in the book of Ecclesiastes, who can have joy apart from God? And the answer is is no one. Put your faith in Christ Experience real joy that can satisfy you like nothing else. Father, thank you for our time tonight. Help us to not forget your word. May we delight in your testimonies. May we sing and pray and meditate on your word day and night that we may find what's truly valuable we may see how rich your word is for us. Father, by your spirit, would you help us to not dismiss your word? Would you write these truths on our hearts? Would you help us to win this war against worldliness? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.